Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The chair will put Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye. We are just seven days away from a potential U.S. default. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control, a podcast where we look around the corner at the challenges and priorities facing the 2023 Congress. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller. And I'm your other host, Brendan Buck. Uh, over the last several weeks, we have talked with reporters and insiders uh, to get their thinking behind the Biden administration's debt limit negotiation posturing. Uh, but today we actually have a guest who is actually in the Biden administration or was until until very recently. So we're excited to have that. Uh, ben Harris is going to join us to share his perspective firsthand on these debt limit uh, negotiations. He was the assistant secretary for economic policy and a counselor uh, to the Secretary of the Treasury, and he served as the chief economist and chief economic advisor to then Vice President Joe Biden. So someone who knows the president, knows what's going on at Treasury, and can speak to the perspective from, from Democrats uh, in the administration. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation to kind of move us along in some of the previous ones we've had, um, trying to figure out exactly what it is uh, Democrats have been thinking. But it is all debt limit, all the time right now, uh, and that excites us. Yeah, that's right. It feels like everybody's kind of just realize that we're, this is really crunch time. We have to get this done. Um, you know, everyone's like zeroing in on all of the different varied ramifications that are going to happen if we sort of fail to uh, raise the debt limit. Um, but in some good news, there is a bit of a, um, I, I guess I'll say, uh, the sun's coming out today, um, feeling like hearing Republicans are um, kind of signaling that they're close to a deal. Uh, I think the word of the day is productive. Uh, previously, the word was urgency. Uh, so I think that's a huge improvement. And moving um, in the right direction. Yeah, we'll we'll see what happens, but um, I think we're we're getting close. Still, uh, I should say lots can change. These things can break down at any point. Um, we're recording this on Thursday, May twenty fifth. Um, again, seven days away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think last time we talked that things were going a little too smoothly, and we, we talked about how there's always going to be these ups and downs and blow-ups, and certainly there have been a lot over the last week. Um, so certainly there's the potential for more blow-ups, but yeah, I mean, good good sign that McCarthy is saying things are moving in the right direction. Um, I know that makes Democrats a little antsy to, say, to see Kevin McCarthy thinking things uh, are going so well, but they obviously don't have a deal yet. Um, and I think that's okay still i know seven weeks until the or seven days until the deadline feels very soon and maybe we can talk through a little bit about the the calendar and and how that's gonna look if they do get a deal but i do think they probably still have another day or two to kind of fight this out and i think i think everybody is kind of targeting this weekend now like you kind of have to have a deal by this weekend so um, where are they right now to the extent that we know? Of course, um, we're not in the room. We don't, we don't know exactly where they are, but you know, what we're seeing and what we're hearing, uh, the, the outline remains the same, uh, figuring out some way to cut spending, put budget caps in place, how steep, for how long, open questions. Um, McCarthy's uh, language of the week, which is, I think, actually relatively consistent, is that we need to spend less next year than we're spending this year. I, I think that's, and maybe this something we'll, we'll, we'll come back to, um, that is a 
pretty kind of simple test. Um, spending, I mean, does that spend a dollar less? Does that meet Kevin McCarthy? You know, the, the, we've got a whole big standoff going here. We hear about the fiscal trajectory of the country, and there's actually a great story uh, in the New York Times today about how like this probably is not going to dramatically change the trajectory of, of spending at all. So I'm really curious to see how steep of a cut they're talking about, how much less this year he's talking about spending. Democrats have talked about uh, a, a flat spending, continuing to spend what we are um, currently. But McCarthy says it needs to be lower. How much lower? How much longer are they going to be able to, how, how long are they going to be able to put the caps in place? Um, again, I think that's kind of easy stuff to figure out how to do. Sounds like they're a little ways away on anything that would be work requirements or um, the permitting reform is you know, technically very complex. And so it'll be interesting to see how they approach that, whether they do kind of like a, a little um, uh, down payment on uh, permitting reform, you know, reform some part of it and then say they're going to come back and, and finish the rest later. Um, bottom line, lots of substance issues still unresolved, but I think there is a new level of optimism that they will get something done relatively soon. And then I think begins the fun part. How do you actually go about passing that? What does the vote look like? What does the process look like? I want to go back to something that you touched on. It's still sort of an outstanding question about um, the work requirements. I thought it was pretty interesting. I think it was like a gaggle. McCarthy said yesterday in response to a question around you know, are you, you know, should you have given Democrats more concessions? And he sort of lists off, you know, actually, I've made all of these concessions. And one of the concessions that he mentioned um, was to Dems was actually the work requirements. So he's indicating that it was, you know, actually an idea from Democrats. So I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, I mean, one, just imagining that conversation to me is interesting and how yeah. that would have come up. But you know, beyond that, I think it speaks to um, McCarthy's ability to kind of communicate and, and sort of be uh, driving this narrative and, and running kind of the show from, you know, doing these these gaggles, which I don't recall Boehner um, or Paul Ryan kind of doing these sort of walking from their office to the floor, you know, sort of these live sometimes like on camera um, you know, just gaggles constantly, sort of daily explaining, you know, where things are. And he's really been successful um, in, you know, getting his message and driving the coverage of, of this of this thing. Yeah, over my dead body. Um, no, we definitely had a rule <laughs> for both Boehner and Ryan that there were no interviews in the hall. Now, both Boehner and Ryan did a lot of press conferences and they were um, so a little more a little more structured, but it was, you know, always with the idea that, you know, you don't want to say anything you don't mean to say. Honestly, some of it is you don't want people swarming you every time you walk around the Capitol. If they know you're not going to say anything, they're less likely to swarm you. Um, but you're totally right. And, you know, as communications professionals, I think we, we, we can we can dwell on this a, a minute. Um, uh, really impressive job by McCarthy. I mean, everyone is basically playing Kevin McCarthy's game at this point. Um, he has totally controlled the conversation around this. He's controlled the process. Um as we'll get into, I still think he has a lot of problems uh, ahead in terms of, of closing this out. But his ability to engage and shape the dialogue surrounding this, I think, has put a lot of pressure on uh, the White House and, and, and Democrats. And I think that's feeding a lot of the anxiety that we see from Democrats. And we'll get and we'll get into that. Um, yeah, I don't know what he means on, on work requirements. I don't know if that was like Bill Clinton did work requirements. So it's a Democratic idea 
or maybe signaling like they're giving a lot on what they you know are trying to do and this may end up being one of those situations again where the ultimate work requirement i say in air quotes work requirement provisions um are not a whole lot of substance um and so what we'll i guess we'll have to see how that that substance comes out but uh the clock is ticking we are we are we are nearing the time where you kind of need something to to shake loose um so let's talk about that what happens in the house if they get a deal this weekend i'm gonna let annalise talk a little bit about the senate as she is our our senate expert um but a couple of like important things to, to keep in mind in sort of the timeline um one is kevin mccarthy maybe the big one kevin mccarthy has said he is going to abide by the 72-hour rule, which is a provision of House rules, maybe it's conference rules, House rules, that um, any bill needs to be sitting out for 72 hours for people to review it before you vote on it. Makes a lot of sense. Um, such a rule has existed for a very long time. Uh, we certainly had it when uh, I was in the Speaker's office. Uh, Pelosi had it but it gets ignored a lot and you can always find a way to waive a rule. I remember the very first bill that uh, Pelosi did when she came off uh, into office uh, after railing against us for waiving the 72 hour rule was she brought up a bill with like 10 hours notice. Um, so anyway, McCarthy is pledging that he's going to let a bill sit out for three days. And um, that is I think probably necessary. I think his members would probably revolt if he didn't, but it's also risky. Uh, the reason you tend to waive these 72 hour rules is the longer something sits out, the tougher it gets to pass. More people find problems with it, more people get anxiety, more people um, start demanding amendments. Um, so we'll have to see what that process looks like. I think this is also some of the reason why McCarthy has decided to send his members home for the weekend. Uh, they announced that uh, given that there's no deal yet, it's the end of votes for the week, members are free to go home rather than kind of sit around and wait for a deal. Uh, I think what that really is all about is that McCarthy doesn't actually want members to be in Washington when a deal is cut. He doesn't want the Freedom Caucus going over to Tortilla Coast and getting themselves all worked up and making demands about, you know, what they need different or what they're going to do to Kevin McCarthy if he brings this this bill to the floor. So um, I think a lot of people are like, wait a second, like we're days away from default and you're sending people home. Yeah, because that's like going to help him ultimately pass it, because when members are around, there's no votes, they have nothing to do. That's when trouble starts. Yeah, well, they're going to have to find somewhere else to meet apart from Tortilla Coast as it's defunct now, sadly. Is it? It is. Oh, it's totally close. I've been gone for too long. Well, yeah. that's, where, that's where they used to hang out. In the basement. Um, yeah, fun times. Um, so over in the Senate, um, I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty complicated. A lot of different things can happen, and I don't want to get too weedy and and sort of all the different procedural maneuvers that members could like try to pull. But I think we're looking at like a, about a week of floor time to get Whoa, this thing done. A week. Yeah, I mean, they, there's things that they can try to do, but we're looking at you know, I, I mean, I don't think so. Okay, well, well, let me back up a little bit. Um, a lot of times on the Senate, they'll try to do things through unanimous consent. They'll try to UC a bill is what it's called, and they'll bring the bill to the floor. That means no individual senator can object, or excuse me, does object. So it will go immediately for a vote. Um, 
I don't see any way that that happens in this case. There, We've already seen, Mike Lee has already said in particular that he's going to do everything that he can to slow this thing down. Um, so we're going to have to vote on a motion to proceed. So I hear this a lot from the Senate that it takes forever to do anything in the Senate. But I also, and I'm not a Senate expert at all, what I also see all the time is, oh my gosh, they somehow figured out how to go much faster than they said they're going to. So, so why should I believe that it's actually going to take this long? And I've heard people like Mike Lee, who, surprise, surprise, now that there's almost a deal, is like, oh, well, I'm going to make a stink now, um, you know, that they won't ultimately appease them somehow with some amendment vote or something that everybody knows is going to fail to move the process along. And you're right. That, that happens all the time, right? I mean, so what will happen is an individual member can put a hold on a motion to proceed uh, around a time agreement. Um, and a lot of times there's horse trading that's done. At that point, they'll contact and say, um, you know, is there so, some piece that you need, something that you need. I mean, it's it's just how the Senate functions and it's why, um, you know, each individual member, you know, has a bit more sway in, in the way that these bills are shaped and come to the floor. So I have a different idea for how they could or perhaps should go about this. Everybody talks about how this has to go through the House first and that McConnell's whole line is that like, you know, anything that can get through the House will get through the Senate. And so once they reach an agreement, just move it through the House. And my understanding is they do plan to move it through the House. Why don't they just go through the Senate first? Now, a few thoughts. Um, One, you could allow that 72 hours to run while the Senate is doing their thing. Senate doesn't have this 72 hour rule. So bring up the bill. They don't care about that kind of stuff. Or, you know, it's gonna have it's gonna take them a while to process it anyway. So let Rand Paul and Mike Lee do their thing for that maybe last four days. Um, and by the time it gets to the House, you've already got a big bipartisan vote. It puts more pressure on everybody to come together and vote for it. Um, and I don't know, I think you can kind of like speed this up a little bit if you just let the senate go first just mm-hmm. just an idea if anybody listening if you want to uh run that by the speaker i think uh majority leader schumer is gonna go for that i mean if it's a de- if it's a deal they have to pass why not why not go first uh, why not why not tell mike lee you can have as long as you want sir you can have all five days and then we'll just pass it through this through the house after that i don't know i think um you know something that we'll talk about more with with ben when he joins to get a little bit of the dim perspective but i think i think there's going to be a lot of I think there already is a lot of frustrations and hurt feelings from the Democrats. Uh, you've already seen, um, you know, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, um, those sort of progressive folks really upset with the way that this deal is taking shape. I think that's going to expand um, that caucus of Democrats that are displeased. And I don't know that the majority leader has sort of the will right now to um, to be proactive in well, that way. He's going to need to pass it eventually. Anyway, but I I think that brings us to uh, a good point. It feels like in the last week, both the far right and the far left have sort of awoken to the reality of what this is going to look like. I'm a little confused by this because it should not be surprising to anybody what this deal is going to look like. If they've been listening to control, they would know the various proponents or various uh, components uh, of, of the deal. But you have, yeah, you have Democrats who are all on fire. Basically, it feels like just mad that they're giving anything for a debt limit increase and that they, you know, feel like they got hosed in this, that McCarthy took them for a ride. You know, why are we why are we giving in to the hostage takers? 
Um, yeah, I think a lot of it's optics. I mean, I think you, even if you look back at last year, Democrats were really under the impression that Republicans were going to be squarely holding the blame on this thing, which I think we all said, you know, when these things happen, I mean, you know, everybody gets blamed. The admit if 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 our economy is not doing well, there's there's not a Democrat out there. And I'm you know looking at Joe Biden, who's not going to carry some of the blame for this. So I think there was a real misconception there that Republicans were going to have to own this whole thing. Yeah, I think they're not going to the substance aside and whatever you know deal comes that they don't like having to give from spending cuts. This does feel like it's a lot more principle and, and political like they're just mad that they're having to do this and they're mad that kevin mccarthy is controlling this conversation and we have seen in recent days hakeem jeffries and and a lot of the democratic leaders have been much more vocal and out there kind of um you know attacking republicans or or, or, or just sort of getting their their point across um i imagine that is in response to some of their members just like what the heck's going on here why is kevin mccarthy the only one we see he's doing all these press conferences where are you um, that's the kind of politics that, that is pervasive in there. So there, you got Democrats who are upset, but you also get some Republicans who I think are just kind of figuring out what this is going to look like. Uh, Chip Roy put out um, a pretty lengthy memo with all these demands that he thinks needs to be in the final bill, or like at least the idea that you need to force the Senate to vote on the House bill uh, before doing anything else. Um, you know, none of that is really going to matter substantively in the end. But I think it does kind of preview some of the grief that McCarthy is going to get when this deal comes together. They passed a bill in the House that cut like $140 billion in discretionary spending. Uh, This is going to be nowhere close to that. And how do they react to that? We went through this whole big, long negotiation, and this is all we get kind of thing. Um, Now, McCarthy's folks seem to be projecting a lot of confidence that they won't have any problem getting a majority of the majority. that is a you know an issue we can discuss, but Chip Roy in particular could be a problem, as you remember, he's on the House Rules Committee. That's right. But I also thought it was interesting in his statement. He said McCarthy took an exit ramp too early, and I'm looking at that like, what? Well, this <laughs> we is have this, seven days. This, what do you mean? But that is the ethos of I'm just saying. That's why that's why they're We're still out of time. that's why they're still talking. Because if you came to a deal last week, everybody would be like, wait a minute, you didn't fight hard. You enough. didn't fight hard enough. Um, but Chip Roy on the ways or on the rules committee is important. Um, if he's really fired up about this and doesn't want to move it forward, like he can block it from getting a vote. And this was the thing that we talked about months ago when McCarthy put him and Thomas Massey on the rules committee. Uh, if three Republicans on the rules, uh, committee and there's three conservatives on there, all conservatives, but you know, three sort of further right conservatives, if they decide that they're not going to support, uh, this deal and they're going to block it in the rules committee, we got a big problem. Like you can't yeah. even can't even get a vote on it. So we got to keep an eye on him. We got to keep an eye on Massey. Um, see how they. I don't imagine they're going to vote for the final deal, but that's different from saying I'm going to use my perch on rules to completely block it. We could be in big trouble. Maybe Democrats would bail them out on that. Um, but that's that's something I'm I'm looking at. Yeah. Or you know this thing is completely coming together and it's sort of the. 11th hour you have these rules committee members sort of trying to extract something else in exchange i mean i could easily see that which kind of blows everything up in the last insisting on amendment votes things like that um so i think the i think this next phase you know we still got to get a deal i think we will but i think that could be even the next week after a deal could be even um much more interesting to see how these how these votes break down um so let's talk about that 
the big question for McCarthy, will he be able to get a majority of the majority, which <clears throat> is a red line that lots of conservatives have said, you should never bring something up that doesn't get a majority of Republicans. And that's when you start getting people questioning your job. If you move bills like that, um, I'm pretty skeptical that he's going to be able to get the hundred and something teen Republicans to vote for this. I think I'm a little more optimistic than you, um, only because at the beginning of his speakership, I was very skeptical that he was going to be able to get anything done. But I've been impressed with um, his leadership team. I mean, they've whipped every vote. You know, they have a they have to get 98 percent of their conference um, every time and they haven't let a vote fail. So, um, I mean, it's hard to say without seeing the, you know, all the things that are going to be included in it. You know, right. There could be something that, you know, is immediately you're going to lose quite a swath of the Republican conference. But I'm at this point a little bit more optimistic that they're going to be able to do to get a majority of the majority. Yeah. As McCarthy says, we tend to underestimate him. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe I am doing that again. Um I will tip my cap to him if he is able to get a majority of the majority. I, 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 I guess at this moment I would say that he doesn't. And you're going to have a lot of Democrats. Um, but, you know, I, I just feel like Democrats will always sort of, enough of them anyway, will, will always sort of be there to, um, to carry us forward. So I guess that brings us to last week we made our, our predictions on whether or not we were actually going to avoid uh, a catastrophe here, get a deal done. By the deadline, we were both, I said 67, and then you cheated and said 66% chance that we're <laughs> going to be able to get that done um, before, uh, I guess, before default, um, get a deal in place. Uh, where are you now a week later, a week closer? Do you think we will be, what, what percentage do you put that we avoid a problem? Um, so just looking at the math, I think I'm much lower this week and that will get a deal um, before the June one date. So I'll say 33%. You only think there's a 33% chance we get a deal done? No, I think we're going to get a deal done. It just won't be in time? I just think it won't be in time. Okay. Um, I am more confident. I've always been confident we were going to get a deal. Um, this just feels like everybody knows the timeline they have to reach. This feels like it's all coming together exactly when it's supposed to come together. Um, I'm going to say 80% chance that we're in the clear. This gets done in time without any um, catastrophe striking. But uh, that's our perspective. Maybe we should bring in our guest uh, to see what he has to think. Uh, we will be right back with Ben. Okay, let's go ahead and bring on our guest for today, Ben Harris. Ben is the former Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy and a counselor to the Secretary of the Treasury. Prior to joining the Treasury Department, he was the Executive Director of the Kellogg Public-Private Initiative and a Research Associate Professor at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Uh, earlier in, her, in his career, he served as the Chief Economist and Economic Advisor to then uh, Vice President Joe Biden. Ben, welcome. Thank you for being here. It's exciting to have somebody with some actual insight into what's going on over on that side of things. We're a little Congress biased here, so thanks for doing this. Of course. Happy to be on. Um, so we've been covering, obviously, these negotiations very closely. I mean, Brendan and I have been tracking the debt limit, understanding that it was going to be like the big pressure point of this Congress, um, you know, before McCarthy secured his speakership. Like, we knew this was going to be the issue, and we've been talking about it. Um, but I'm really curious to hear 
you know, I don't want to throw too many hypotheticals at you, but, you know, say I think we feel kind of good that a deal is going to be reached. I think we're just a little murky on the timing on when they're going to be able to get this thing through just procedurally. Um, so, you know, day one of like June one, you know, say we get there um, and, you know, maybe they're a couple of days away from actually getting this thing signed and Congress, you know, finalizing the the negotiated deal um, as as someone who you know has deep experience in the Treasury Department I mean what happens on day one in June you know again this is kind of unprecedented but what would you imagine would happen and how would this play out in Treasury so it really depends on when the actual X date is and no one including Janet Yellen knows when that date is because we need to look over the next few days to see how tax receipts look so when she communicates to Congress and, and really to the public and says it could hit as early as June 1st uh, and will very likely hit in early June. I mean, you can take that projection to the bank, but she doesn't have a crystal ball. She doesn't know what receipts will look like over the next few weeks. The thing that's tricky right now is we're flying really close to the sun. I mean, with a Treasury Department that brings in trillions and trillions of dollars a year, we're talking about having maybe a few tens of billions of dollars in early June. Uh, I mean, it's the equivalent of having like three cents in your checking account and, you know, wondering if it's going to go down to one cent or whether or not it's going to go negative. So we don't know what's, when the actual X date is. We don't know what will happen with markets. I mean, I've been a little surprised by how much confidence markets have had that there will be an outcome. You're not seeing disruptions like we saw in earlier episodes and, and happy to talk about that as well. But to your question, Annalise, I mean, I think what, what happens in early June, uh, if we don't have a deal, really is up to markets and to investors. Now, the last thing I'll say is that one thing we've heard is that it may take a few days once the deal is reached for things to actually go through Congress. And McCarthy has said, has committed to having 72 hours of review for the House, but they can waive that. And I think they waived that with earlier bills. Um, so these usual timeframes for passing things, that can be accelerated if Congress really needs to. If we're talking about crashing the US economy, my, my suspicion is that they would waive that 72 hour timeframe. Will we get, and maybe you don't know this, but will we get a clearer picture of the exact X date? Or do you think Yellen, even just for strategic reasons, will keep some ambiguity about when exactly that would be? So Yellen has proven to be um, just a straight player when it comes to communicating on the X date. I, I will say, I mean, I've been in economic policy for a few decades now, and you're not going to meet anyone with more credibility than Janet Yellen. I mean, this is a former Fed chair. She's not going to say things that aren't true for, for uh, strategic reasons. I was part of those projection meetings at Treasury where uh, there was a lot of uncertainty. The window was much wider six weeks ago when I left Treasury. But um, I think it's pretty clear that when she communicates, she is communicating the latest information that she has. So when will we know? Uh, you know, each week she's been coming out with uh, another update. My guess is next week uh, on Monday or Tuesday. Monday's a holiday, so potentially Tuesday she'll come out with the update. And, uh, and the window may close on that day. We just don't know. So we'll, I think, get into a little bit of the politics and the, and the strategy behind this. But to just to kind of 
uh, focus a little more on sort of the treasury perspective of this. Um, what can you tell us about how treasury thinks about some of these, what we would call like extra extraordinary measures that people, that people talk about. And, um, you know, the, the president came out and said, yeah, we've been looking at the 14th amendment. Um, obviously our, our producer Benji here loves to talk about minting the coin. Like how serious do these things get batted around? How thoroughly do they get looked at? And, you know, I know these things come up every time we do this, but what can you say about like how the administration views these things and whether they're actually live options? So I think it's important to understand the culture at the Treasury Department. And this is not the White House. I've, I've done three stints in the White House, uh, sorry, two stints in the White House and one at Treasury. And the culture is really different. I mean, Treasury is basically, run, you know, it runs like an agency. It's fairly apolitical. Uh, you've got people there who were here before political appointees from the Biden administration came in and they'll be here long after uh, we're gone. And the culture at Treasury is just to see the well-functioning, um, the well-functioning of the U.S. economy and the financial system in particular. So I think that Treasury doesn't love to talk about politics. They don't like to talk about things that introduce risk. They just want to see uh, a well-functioning financial sector. They want to pay our bills on time. As far as your specific question, as far as these particular workarounds, I mean, I think it'd be irresponsible not to kick the tires on potential new extraordinary measures or different options just to understand what options are on the table if we get to a point where Congress doesn't have a plausible uh, solution when we reach the X date. I mean, A, you've got to have contingency planning to know what you're going to do, and B, you've got to have some other options on the table. Now, none of those are appealing. I think that some are, I mean, all of these are really unlikely. Some are virtually impossible. And so minting the coin, theoretically, I think can make a lot of sense. I think practically speaking, it's just not going to happen, in part because I don't think that the Fed would cooperate. I mean, Jay Powell has been pretty clear. He doesn't want to be part of political discussions or political negotiations. Minting the coin requires cooperation from the Fed. Uh, I think that's probably off the table. Uh, other options like premium bonds, I think, would take a lot more time than we have. This is You can't just have a new way of auctioning off treasury securities introduced on the fly. So I think those are probably uh, unlikely. The 14th Amendment, where you effectively legally test the constitutionality of the debt limit, I think is very risky. You don't want to have a, a constitutional crisis simultaneously when you're having a financial crisis. Um, I don't know how various courts would rule on this. I don't think anyone knows how various courts would rule on this. So there's a lot of inherent risk with just blowing past the, the, the X state uh, and citing the 14th Amendment. Um, and there are other possible options that, that I'm not aware of. I mean, people have brought up selling off assets. They've brought up possibly using uh, Social Security trust fund assets. Uh, that was tried, I believe, during the Reagan administration, and um, and courts had some thoughts about that. So there's no silver bullet, and all this, all this carries quite a bit of risk. But I think there's some things which are slightly more likely than others. Yeah, I mean that's sort of been our view. Like that, you know, there's there's really one way out of this, and that's an agreement, and that's why I think they're ultimately going to reach one. Hopefully, hopefully they reach one uh, in time. Um, so let's get into the the politics of this a little bit and maybe just kind of take your temperature a lot of democratic angst right now about the kind of situation that we have found ourselves in 
um, you know, understandable frustration with Republicans. But um, where do you come down on sort of the strategy that has been uh, deployed here? Um, Did Democrats wait too late, as Kevin McCarthy says, to engage on this? Um, You know, something we were talking about earlier, it kind of feels like everybody is, um, you know, kind of playing Kevin McCarthy's game at this point. Uh, And so just wondering just generally how you feel about how this was handled and and any sort of um, any angst that you're picking up. So usually when I talk about the debt ceiling, I, I note that we shouldn't be having this conversation in the first place. The debt ceiling has been raised something like almost 80 times since about 1960. Most of the times it's not made political. It was raised three times during the Trump administration, uh, 2017, 2018, 2019. I don't think we had very many discussions about it then. And I think it's somewhat um, odd that Congress would appropriate funding and then have a debate about whether or not to pay for the funding that's already appropriated. Um, but, you know, here we are with an ongoing negotiations. Uh, you know, the argument over whether or not we should have a debate over the debt ceiling, okay, that ship has sailed. We're definitely having an argument in negotiations over uh, whether or not we should extend the X date. I think that Kevin McCarthy has defined the set of possible options with the bill that did pass the house um but i do think that democrats do have some options and i think that you know one of the things that democrats have been focusing on have been the cost of that bill uh in particular repealing some of the tax credits for energy production uh and also cuts to discretionary spending so yesterday i testified to congress and highlighted a lot of the the cost of those cuts i think that Cuts in discretionary spending in the abstract are, are quite popular, but when you start talking about what it means, it gets a lot less popular. So, for example, um, if you if you had to cut the budget for TSA by roughly 20%, that means several hundred fewer air traffic control towers. That means longer waits at TSA, things that I think are really unpopular with the American public. So one option that Democrats have are to highlight the cost of those cuts. Uh, the other thing is that it's really interesting. I think this is a bit underappreciated. The day that the X date could hit really matters in all of this, right? So financial markets have basically taken the view, look, they're going to reach a solution. And even if they don't, they're going to continue to make principal and interest payments on Treasury securities. So the view is maybe you have to delay payments to contractors by a few days. Uh, worst case scenario, perhaps you don't make a social security payment for 48 hours, but this won't affect financial markets. Um, I will say that, you know, that's a decision that the president makes uh, and no one else. But when you look at the pattern of expected payments over the range of days where the X date could hit, which is June 1st through June 14th, you've got early in that window, you've got a couple of social security payments for uh SSI, which are people with very low incomes, but you don't have those big social security payments until the second Wednesday of a month. So that's June 14th. And June 14th really isn't in the window because by if you can get to June 14th, you've got all these other tax receipts coming in through estimated tax payments. Um, you also don't have a scheduled coupon payment until June 15th. So you know, Democrats may have more leverage than than uh, than is appreciated. Uh, you could imagine getting to June 8th or 9th and Democrats sort of saying, look, the deal on the table is just, it's too bad a deal for us. We're not going to agree 
to five or 10 years of budget caps. And instead, maybe we will play the prioritization game. I mean, I, I honestly don't know, but I guess my point is, is that it doesn't necessarily look like there's going to miss a, a coupon payment uh, just because of the days that it, it happens, the X date happens to fall on. So it sounds like Treasury kind of has the authority to kind of pick and choose, or or is that not the case when it comes to some of these bills being due? So there's two questions. There's can Treasury do this, and does Treasury want to do this? The the second question is much easier. This is up to the president. And a lot of times I talk with folks in financial markets, they'll point to transcripts from the Fed, in particular this transcript that came out in 2013 when Bernanke was chair, and they'll say, oh, no, there's a prioritization plan in place. That's what Treasury's going to do. And my point is, okay, this is the Fed talking about the Treasury two administrations ago. And so the will Treasury do this? If Treasury prioritizes, that's a call for Joe Biden and for no one else. And there's no transcript of Joe Biden discussing this. We just we just don't know. And I was his economic advisor for five years. I don't know what he would do in this situation. As far as can Treasury do this, I think that theoretically it's very easy to say, look, there's lots of payments. Just make some, don't make others. And if I look at my own payments that go out, look, I can choose. I've got, you know, I don't know, 30 payments a month, and I can make a few credit card payments and not make my electricity bill. But when you're talking about the treasury system, you're talking about millions and millions and millions of payments which are designed to be made. They're not designed to be not made. And it's a little like Y2K, where we kind of have these expectations around some of the bugs that might happen, um, but you just don't know until you try it. And so when Yellen goes out and she says, look, this has never been tried before, this being a prioritization where we pay some bills and don't pay others, we honestly don't know what will happen. We don't know whether or not it will work and just because you can imagine making some and not making others doesn't mean this massive system will accommodate your imagination. Yeah, and how markets react in the meantime is also obviously of, of pretty serious concern. Um, but I want to go back to, you've mentioned this a couple of times, but I think it's really interesting to get your perspective on negotiations because you were both in Treasury and also in the White House. So you've seen kind of both sides and you've been a part of these negotiations, uh, you know, not only... Uh, this time around, or to a lesser extent, but um, in the White House with then Vice President, uh, who was extremely involved in those negotiations. And so I'm just curious, like, how you see, um, you know, this debt limit negotiation uh, as compared to previous debt limit negotiations. You know, 2011 is obviously one that jumps out. Um, just curious how you think, what you think Biden learned from that, and if he's tried to employ some of those tactics in, in this go around. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know what lessons he's necessarily learned uh, because it's a different Congress, and and you know John Boehner is a very different person in 2011 than Kevin McCarthy is today. Uh, John Boehner's speakership really was not on the line the way that Kevin McCarthy's is today. Um, 2013 uh, with then I believe Speaker Ryan, completely different situation. I think that one of the things that was really different in 2013 versus 2011 was in 2013, I think that there was some debt limit fatigue and that the American public and the financial sector and the business community had gone through this in 2011. And the general sense was like, not again. And there was a short term extension in 2013. Um, and then Republicans lost a lot of leverage. In 2011, I think that they did have a lot of leverage because everyone was so terrified of going over the cliff 
similar to the way they are today. This feels a lot like 2011. The difference is, is that in 2011, everyone was freaking out. So the stock market fell by 17% in the days and weeks leading up to the X date. There was a one day decline of 5%, which you know felt tarp-like. You saw a declining consumer and business confidence. Credit markets started to freak out a little bit. The spreads on treasury on uh, mortgages and triple B corporate debt were going through the roof. So markets were getting really scared. I mean, today, if you want to say, where's the market reaction? Okay, we have a few consecutive days of declining stock prices, but nothing like we saw in 2011. Uh, investors are demanding really high rates for short-term bonds, but that's kind of it. Um, the other thing that's different is in 2021, I thought the turning point in 2021 was when Jamie Dimon and Jane Frazier and the CEO of Raytheon and the CEO of the ARP went on television with President Biden and Janet Yellen and said, yeah, what Republicans are doing, they're holding the economy hostage. This is really bad for the American people. It's bad for our business. It's bad for the U.S. economy. And that was a bad look for Republicans. And I don't think the business leaders have had the same um, engagement. They haven't been as outspoken as they were before. And I think that really matters. So I, I I take it you don't like love the situation that we have all found ourselves in at this point. Do you think going forward, Democrats will now actually try to pursue some route to avoid these things sort of permanently? Um, there's a lot of like looking back, well, like, God, I wish we had put a debt limit increase in the omnibus from last year to kind of like take this off the table. Do you think that this sort of coming up again, and I, I will put on the table, like I've you know, I, I don't know if I'm reformed, but I've come to say we should just get rid of the debt limit. I think it's not not useful. Do you think that there will be a renewed sense of like this needs to be resolved more permanently by Democrats next time they have the opportunity? I think that that's probably right. Uh, I'm a little surprised that after 2011, we Democrats didn't learn our lesson. Um, you know, and I will say, I think what's lost in a little bit of this is that there is a time and place to discuss deficit reduction strategies. I mean, Joe Biden just released his 2024 budget, which had $3 trillion in deficit reduction. Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans have a $4.8 trillion deficit reduction plan, uh, and much of which, almost all of it, relies on cuts in discretionary spending. We have the end of the fiscal year at the end of September that could have given House Republicans an opportunity to cut spending through the appropriations process. So there is a time and a place to have discussions about deficit reduction policy, uh, I just don't think you should be holding the U.S. economy hostage and undermining our international competitiveness to do so. So, I mean, that's that's my perspective. I do think you're right. I think that the Democrats may say, look, we've generally lost on a lot of these debt ceiling negotiations. It's not like Democrats have the same, um, you know, the flip side when President Trump was in office where they use that as an opportunity to negotiate for, for wins. So, Debt ceiling negotiations seem like they're always hurting Democrats and not the other way around. So, I mean, I hope that the Democrats can can learn some lessons from this. But right now, I think that the task at hand is just to save the U.S. economy. Yeah, you mentioned something interesting about um, the business leaders and Yellen and Biden kind of being united in 2021. Um, and I think there was kind of a sense that, um, you know, maybe as an outgrowth of that, 
that Republicans um, and House Republicans in particular would be bearing the brunt of, you know, a failure to raise the debt limit. I think we were pretty skeptical that McCarthy was going to be able to keep the conference in line and, and pass anything. I think um, I was certainly surprised by that. Um, and I wonder if, you know, there were parts of the, you know, Democratic caucus that kind of felt similarly and was caught, you know, a little bit uh, by surprise by McCarthy's ability to do this and and sort of now the public polling showing that, you know, it's not just Republicans that are going to be blamed for something like this happening, right? I think everybody's going to get a lot of blame. It, it's going to be, you know, pretty, pretty bad for both parties. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that there are two big unknowns heading into any debt ceiling impasse. The first is what financial markets will do. And if you see an increased stress in financial markets that tends to bleed into the, the rest of the economy, that increases the chance for a quick resolution. The second thing that really matters for all of this is blame. And that's really difficult to figure out in advance. So if you look at some of the budget battles of the 1990s, uh, President Clinton won those, I think, with with the Republicans in a way that was difficult to predict in advance. And we, that's when we saw government shutdowns. I think you can probably say the same thing of uh, that long government shutdown we had during the Trump administration. But, you know, polling suggests, I think you're right, that that, at, you know, the most likely scenario is that the blame is shared. Um, and there could be outcomes where, for whatever reason, the public places blame on Democrats. And so you lose leverage. You lose leverage if financial markets don't go crazy, and you lose leverage if you're going to accept some or all of the blame. And it's really tough to know how that will play out in advance. Yeah, it just feels like we're sort of too late for anybody to kind of like declare they have the upper hand on the sort of public opinion side of things. Like we're here, we're in it. Like now, it's just like what kind of what kind of deal are you going to get? Um, well, we're going to get you out of here, but um, would just kind of love your here we are Thursday afternoon. Um, your if if you were to say put a percentage on the likelihood that we're able to get a deal in time before something uh, catastrophic happens, where would you come down? So I think there's about a 75 percent chance that we'll get a deal that looks something like um, caps for somewhere between two and five years that are where 2024 looks uh, spending looks a lot like 2023 spending. And then you get some growth rate, which is below the Fed's target, you know, one or two percent. That's about a 75 percent chance. I think that there's uh, about a 15 percent chance that you get some sort of short term resolution that doesn't involve Congress coming together and passing something. Now, that could be well, by that, I mean, you could either get a short term extension that takes you later on this summer. Um, I think if they're not there, there's a chance you get that. Um, I think that I would also include, you know, Treasury and the Biden administration, maybe finding extraordinary measures that take us past June 15th or just pure luck. And, and maybe we get uh, tax receipts come in higher than we thought. And the X state, you know, not due to any sort of policy decision, but just happens to go past uh, the 15th. So I think there's, um, you know, maybe 10 or 15% chance, percent chance of that happening. And I think there's about a 10 or 15% chance that we get in a situation where we go past the X state, Treasury can't make all of the payments, we test prioritization, and um, and we see what happens. And, uh, and, you know, we get to June 15th, and, and then the X state is naturally pushed out to sometime in mid to late July. 
that's a really high percentage. I mean, that's higher yeah. than the credit default swap markets are suggesting. Um, part of the problem is, is I know you're looking to wrap up, but part of the problem, well, I don't know if it's a problem, but there's so few people involved in the negotiations here. Uh, we're really talking about a handful of White House staff and a handful of senior staff in, in the House. So, uh, you know, I think that journalists are frustrated. They're not getting any leaks. You're getting tons of speculation, but very little actual signals. So it's, it's really tough to know. Um, you know, and I've said it before, I'll say it again here. I mean, the drama would be fantastic if the consequences <laughs> weren't so high. So yeah. I've got my fingers crossed for a resolution one way or another. Um, you know, I would really hate to see the full faith and credit of the United States be called into question. No, Ben, you're one of us. We're here for the drama. We hope it doesn't happen, but if it is, it's God, it's fascinating to watch. I appreciate that you have a certain level of optimism. I think I'm about the same level. Annalise is a little more skeptical, but yeah, I mean, like 75%, 80% chance that something's going to, uh, go right is seems high, but the, that 20, 25% is pretty scary. So, uh, we will be watching it. Thank you very much for joining us. This was a fascinating conversation. Your insights were really, really, uh, appreciated and, and helpful for all of us. So thank you for joining us. And, uh, I know you'll be watching it along with us. I will. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Control is a production of Seven Letter, a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston, with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy, and corporate engagement. Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.